Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Tommy Richardson to the show. Tommy is a technology executive focusing on large-scale SaaS and BPO mission-critical systems. His background spans many industries, including marketing, healthcare, HR, education, transportation, and procurement. Currently, he is the Chief Product and Technology Officer at Litmus. Tommy has over 22 years of experience as CTO, General Manager, and COO at a wide variety of companies. Tommy has a passion for building software that simplifies business challenges and delights customers. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Ah, thank you. Great to be here. Tommy, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your role at Litmus? Sure. You know, Litmus is a top of the class LMS provider to corporate learners. And so if you work in a corporation today, chances are you might be using our LMS for a lot of the learning that you do. You know, this can be down to the basic classes that you may take around compliance training, sexual harassment training, diversity training, but all the way to specialty training, you know. So if you're in healthcare, maybe learning about new procedures in certain specialties. If you work in sales, sales enablement, how do you know your products? How do you learn about how your products compete with other products? So if you're in a competitive situation and you're selling, you kind of hone in your pitches. And so we really do all those sort of things for corporations. And so my part of that is operating all the product area. And product in a LMS software company is is some of the traditional things you kind of think about with product, right? So you have technology certainly at play. You know, LMS is an application with a mobile app and a web app that sits on it with a lot of feature functions that have been built. And so, you know, all the engineers and QA people that build that report to me, all the operations and cloud people who, you know, certainly keep production running and secure and available, you know, are part of my team. And then the other part of that is, you know, the product part and deciding like what we're going to go build. I'm certainly being a product company, we're always looking at like, how do we expand? How do we sell what we have? But how do we build new modules, new features? As Patrick said kind of early on, how do we delight our customers? You know, maybe even enhance existing features or or fix things that aren't delighting our customers. And so that whole product team where we certainly come up with the ideas, you know, capture the ideas, whether they come from sales marketing customers. We learn from the marketplace of kind of what they're they're needing and all the way to how we kind of go from ideation down to business cases and prioritizations and costing and all that fun stuff as part of product that I do. The other really unique thing in, in a learning company like ours is we also have content. And so I have the content team because when you think about it from a customer point of view, they're buying our LMS and also they buy some of our content, mm. the content and the videos and the questions and the and the exams and stuff that are part of our LMS, like that's part of the product to them. You know, it's what they use and what they touch. And, you know, the process is there a bit different, you know, so we have production studios, kind of like this podcast, right, where we record videos and, you know, we have actors and 
all of those things that, that we employ, which are to me very interesting because it's a, a little bit different than kind of your traditional software company. And so that's the stuff that I do. It's a ton of fun working with the, the great teams that we have here and, and working on a, a world-class LMS product that, uh, and company that Litmus is. That's really exciting. And, and that focus on training and, and elevating and teaching, I think is, I think we all recognize it's going to be a critical element for any organization to succeed. Um, too often, I think you still hear the old like management philosophies of, you know, you hire somebody who's got experience for the role, but I don't know too many people taking lateral moves at this point. Right. So it's almost every situation you have to expect that you're going to be training somebody for the role that they're taking, which I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, no. but it does provide some very unique challenges. Oh, yeah. And the world's continuing to change. The example I used around sales enablement, even if you're just selling software or you're selling cars, the whole car market has changed a lot lately, you know, with, with all the electronic cars and you're trying to teach your salespeople, how do you pitch this car versus a Tesla? or some other other car, drastic a lot of changes, I think, in, in a lot of industries. And like I said, even in software, the, the same thing. So it's not just even if someone has the skills, you know, the skills that they're going to need next year are probably going to be different than what they have now. And so how do you continue to train them and, and teach them so that they're prepared to do their jobs? And so if, if, if you're trying to sell to that customer again, whether it's a car or it's a piece of software, you know, you're, you're representing that product really, really well. And, you know, that's even true for some, for some age old things, you know, like sexual harassment, the regulations and things of that continue to change over the years and keeping that up to date. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun too. I think, I think it's definitely a, a worthy cause when you think about it, like we're, we're helping people learn, we're helping people improve their lives because they're learning new skills which should help them do better in their jobs and better in their professions, which which helps their families and their livelihood. And so I think you got a little bit of that, you know, tucked in, which is which is also pretty cool. What is uh, I'm curious, um, what is Litmus's differentiators? What is uh, what is the secret sauce that uh, you know differentiates uh, Litmus from other LMSs? Uh, feature richness, and so Litmus has been around for a while and when you sort of compare the feature functions that it has in it it's one of the most feature rich ones out there and so like if you go look at any of the analyst reports you'll see litmus in the upper right hand corner of the lms's that are there they've also focused on corporate learning so there's all kinds of different learning spaces you know you have classrooms you have k through 12 you have municipals you know training firefighters and stuff like that. Like they, they, I think they've been very focused on corporate learning, which I think has really helped them excel. And that's, that's a big market. You know, most of the organizations out there are, are corporate in form. And, and so that's that. And I think the other thing that's in play, like they're just not software. And so they have content. And so a lot of the, the common content, as I was sort of saying before around diversity training and sexual harassment training, like when you buy, Litmus's LMS, you get it included. A lot of cases, you know, the HR department or the compliance department or whoever's buying that training, they're going out there hunting. They're on Google, Googling, trying to find it. They're asking their their peers in the industry, like, hey, who do you use for that? 
for us, you know, being a reputable company that folks with name brand recognition, we kind of come with that, with the credentials and the recognition right away, where you know you're using our content, it's going to be high quality, it's going to be up to date. So I think you put that together, and that's that's one of the key reasons why Litmus is perceived very well uh, out there uh, in the industry. That's awesome. Tommy, it sounds like you've got a library list of, of content that your clients have access to, but then you can also create individualized content. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing too. So on our platform, and this gets into getting the feature richness of it, you can go in and create your own content. So we have tools to help them do that. Now, it's not going to be as fancy as the content that we create because it's done in a production studio. But if if there's some unique content that a customer has just for them, we have the tools where they can go create that. We also have the capability to help them do that too. And, you know, some companies I've worked with before, most companies struggle with this because unfortunately, learning in a lot of companies isn't a forefront issue. It comes last and like you look at it and it's like a lot of companies I've worked at, everyone wanted to do it. But the big problem was, well, how do we go build all this content? You know, if you just go back to sales enablement, like everybody wants that, you know, everybody wants their sales people to be armed with how to sell their product to to how to have a competitive discussion, you know, why should you buy ours versus theirs? Like th- these are common sales motions. And in most cases, like that stuff is word of mouth, it's tribal knowledge, it might be on a PowerPoint somewhere, but you don't have a system like video and some Q&A questions, you know, to sort of test for knowledge are much better ways to learn than doing a PowerPoint. And then you can track compliance to it, like who all took it, who didn't take it, and so I, I think our ability to have the tools to help them do that very easily or either help them build that content is definitely a, a distinct advantage for us as a company. Nice. So I'm curious, looking into an interesting new year, right, as we're kicking off 2023, what is going to be your number one focus involving new products, new features? You, you sit in a very unique position as the chief product and technical officer. It's a lot of influence over direction. What are you looking at from from an innovation standpoint? Oh man, I mean it's 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 not any one thing. I would kind of kind of wrap it up into well there's going to be some technology innovation. How can we leverage certain tools out there in the cloud to help us run faster to maybe provide some functions that we don't have, recommendations. You know, a lot of these clouds, AWS and Azure, have gotten a lot smarter on tools around machine learning and and AI, where you don't need 10 PhDs from MIT to (laughs) nothing against MIT. Those are super smart people, but hard to find, you know, our PhDs, yeah, hard to find, you know, but the cloud guys have made that a lot easier now to adopt some of those technologies. And so I think, I think, you know, certainly some innovation of leveraging some of those new sort of cloud technologies that the cloud providers are giving us will, will be something that, that we'll do. The other is just natural LMS feature functions that will add to the product that our customers have been asking for, that our sales team has, has been looking for. And then the other is, you know, potentially getting into extending ourselves a bit into uh, to natural next step things for an LMS to kind of get into new modules, you know, and that, and that kind of gets into, 
you know, those two things I just kind of mentioned, those, those are innovation, but probably a little bit less risky innovation. When you think about kind of adding a new product or a new module, those are a bit riskier, but those also are, you know, that's how you grow a bit faster too, right? You come up with an idea of how you, you make learning easier in a corporation and you go build that. And it's probably an idea that a competitor doesn't have. May even be an idea that customers don't even know they want. Um, but I expect us to this year kind of spend some time on a couple of those and see, you know. And I think the trick with with doing innovations like that is, and I think it's true for any of those ideas I just said. Like you need to have firm business cases really defined. And obviously, you know, if you're going to enhance your existing product or build some new features on existing product, like those business cases will probably be a bit tighter. So when you say, hey, this is this is what we're going to do, either here's the price increase we can get out of it or the additional users or clients we can sell it to. Still a lot of unknowns even there, but like you're probably going to be a little bit tighter versus if you go, hey, I'm going to go build this, you know, I don't want to give away any of our innovations <laughs> to any any competitors that might be listening to this, but but certainly different than going and building some new module that's not out there that no one else is doing. And so I think you still need a business case on it, but it's probably going to be a little bit looser and you're just going to have to, to measure it as you go and continue to kind of see, you know, like, are you meeting your, your assumptions and maybe manage it a, a little bit tighter so it doesn't turn into one of those getaway trains where, you know, hey, we're, we're going to go spend, you know, a million bucks for a year. And before you know it, it's three years and you spent 10 which typically doesn't happen with feature function additions, but but building new products and modules, that's that's always a risk. Yeah, yeah. So I expect us to kind of do all three of those, which I think kind of makes sense. You know, you, you, you got to, you can't ignore any of that. I think like you got to do the technology evolution because you don't want to fall behind Is the technology is easier to use. We're in competitive situations and if we're not going to do it, our competitors will. We have to listen to our clients and when they, you know, there's key feature functions that they build, like we have to do that. Like we can't go disappear for a year and not do any of their requests. And then we have to innovate. We have to kind of figure out, hey, we're great today and we're up, we're in the upper right-hand quadrant. But if we don't continue to innovate and figure out what, like, what's that next great thing, then, you know, in two, three years, we may not be in that right-hand quadrant. And so to me, you kind of got to do all three of those. You can't really put all your, your chips on just one of those <laughs> segments or you might get eventually that'll probably catch up to you. It sounds like you have a bit of a, like a portfolio management approach to where you're investing and uh, depending upon where the business is at, right? You've got some of the longer term investments with completely new products, some near closer term with the modules and then just even refinement and improvement. When you're going through something like that, how do you prioritize? What are some of the, the thoughts that you have? I mean, I think it depends on where you are and sort of your maturity. And I think this is true whether you're starting from scratch. You know, you've, you've been sort of prioritizing by committee and it's, you know, loudest voice wins and you're kind of moving to something more sophisticated or you're already running something sophisticated. Typically, to me, you sort of come up with a, with a category of work and... If you're doing it the first time, you can look at some benchmarks. You know, I kind of talked about like three categories of work there, but you know, like how much are you going to spend on security? How much are you going to spend on tech debt? 
how much are you going to spend on enhancements? How much are you going to spend on support and defects? How much are you going to spend on new features? And how much are you going to spend on innovation? And when you've been doing it for a while and you've kind of got your mix right, you typically kind of have some percentages that sort of act as, I wouldn't call them barriers, but I, w- I would almost call them like guardrails, okay. you know, because it's like, well, we, we normally spend 20% on technical debt and we normally spend 30% on new features. And so that allows you as, as you're kind of making decisions, not that you can't spend more or less in those areas, but they kind of kind of get you to think about it. Because I would say generally, I think what you have to do, it's kind of a multidimensional problem. Everything that you're doing, any type of money I think that you're doing or spending, whether it's tech debt money or defect money or innovation money, there needs to be a business case on it. Like, why are we doing it? And the business case needs to have some monetary reason to it. Now, it could be a positive one. We're going to go build this and it's a new thing we're going to sell and we're going to make money. It could be a negative one, which if, if we don't do defects, our, our churn is going to increase. But either way, you break it into dollars and cents where you understand that you know, the impact of the company. And in theory, you should be working on the ones that are going to provide the highest value to the company. But again, I think you got to be careful where you can't ignore your category of work. And so I think that's where the where that second layer kind of comes in. With Once you kind of have your priorities and you can sort of see in monetary terms, you know, what the priorities are, then you can go lay your category of work on it. Because like you may, you may, all your priorities may say you should do all this innovation work, you know, and like, don't do anything else. And I would say, well, that's, that's probably not right. You got to get your your category of work, your your mix work. And so to me, I think that's a big thing. And I and I think whether you're starting out doing that from scratch, you know, like if you're doing it from scratch, you some benchmarks out there that you can go look at. You can talk to other people in your line of work. And how much do you spend on tech debt? Oh, we spend 20%. How much do you spend on defects for 15? And kind of start to build some guardrails that help you kind of figure out where you're going to spend. And then if you have the right systems in place, you can track that over a time period and go, well, well, how did that work out? We spent two, we got a lot of customer complaints and we had some churn because we didn't fix the defects fast enough. Okay, well, we need to fix our allocation. And then, well, what are we going to cut? And so I've always kind of seen that process work really, really well. Again, whether you're going from not doing that and you're just starting to, to very uh, mature companies. And there's some great frameworks out there. Like I'm a big fan of Pragmatic, which is a great product process, which does a lot of those things that I talked about. And they have some great templates. Speaking of training, they have some really good training programs too, to sort of teach people how to do it. I do not work for Pragmatic, but uh, I would, <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking about doing something like that, I would definitely look them up. They've got some good stuff. So Tommy, you've had a really interesting career so far and just a lot of different paths. I think our listeners will be interested to hear how you got here. And uh, did you expect that this was going to be your path? That is very funny. No, I did not. I don't know if this is most people's journeys, but to me, there's always two or three events in your life that sort of take you someplace. And in the moment, you don't know. But when you look back on it, you're like, wow, those decisions really changed the, the journey of my life. And so, no, I did not know. I got into technology at a very early age, 18 years old, by uh, joining the the army. And uh, I joined the army to, you know, get some money to help pay for school. And uh, long story short, I kind of narrowed it down to uh, being a tanker or going into uh, what they called back then computer operations and programming. 
and I almost did the tanker. And I do wonder where in my life would I be today? But but luckily, I picked the computer operations and programming world and went in and did that and, and really found, you know, what I would say would be sort of my calling. You know, it's it's something I loved. I was really good at it. The Army had a computer school that had people, you know, graduates of college where I was this young kid that was 18 years old. And I didn't really grow up with computers either, you know, so it was all new to me. But and it was just, it was like natural. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And, you know, went back to school, took all the computer programming classes, graduated, and then went to work. You know, back then they called us programmers. Now they like to be called software engineers. But, uh, you know, very, very quickly, again, because I loved what I was doing, I think I did pretty well. And, and because of that, and also, you know, I was, I was sort of a unique programmer. I didn't mind talking and presenting and, you know, stuff like that. And so I moved up pretty rapidly through the management ranks, you know, in my career. And like I was the CTO in my, uh, I think, 29 years old or something. Wow. You know, it was my first CTO job. And so since then, yeah, I've been doing tech work. I've, I've done, you know, kind of like you guys said at the startup, I've done all kinds of things. I did startups, a couple of startups, which were a ton of fun. And I would say about the startups, I learned a lot because, you know, in a startup, you're, you're doing a little bit of everything. But one of the things they learned in the startup, which is kind of another inflection point for me in my career, is just like how much you get done with so few people. And why is it big companies get less done with so few people? You know, you even look at Twitter now, right? It's it's kind of like, man, they've got more innovation. We could debate whether people like the innovation or not. But like, man, they're producing more innovation than they have in the past three months. Then like Twitter, I don't think changed much you know, in three years with all those engineers. And so to, to me, something that kind of stuck with me around startups is just like, well, how do you do that? And so when I kind of decided to kind of get out of doing startups and, and go do big cokes, I went to ADP and and uh, Siemens and, and then Teradata. So, you know, some big public companies there. It was all about, well, how do we, yeah, we have a lot more engineers now. We have hundreds of them. Uh, working on stuff like like how do we organize ourselves? How do we think? How do we empower you know our teams to think and work like they were in a startup? And so that's been something that I spend a lot of time on. You know, I actually had a meeting you know with the team with Litmus today talking a little bit about that. So how do you, how do you kind of cut the red tape? Uh, do that? And I think you know that's really helped me personally and the companies I've been involved in because we've been able to have some real high high-performing teams that have built some really great product because like, you know, you hire smart people, you know, you don't want to micromanage them. You don't want to trap them under a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. Like you kind of want to let them go. Now it needs to be controlled because you don't want to have 70 teams going in 70 different directions. So there's a little bit of governance you could say that you have to layer on top. But uh, I would say that's something else, you know, to me that, I've kind of spent a lot of my time on and, you know, as companies grow and scale, because that's the point, right? You get in a company, you want to grow it. And uh, corporate America, like, how do you not slow down? How do you not start getting too bureaucracy, you know, kind of driven? And how do you continue to innovate is definitely something that stuck with me. And and now in the private equity world that I've been doing uh, in the past few companies, I really love it because I, I think the private equity world is a good mix of risk and reward between startups and public companies, 
right? Because unlike a startup, typically most startups, like they're proving their business model, you know, like there's a lot of risk, you know, the private equity firms are mature companies. They're, they're a proven model. It's just like, well, how do you scale it? And certainly there's some big private equity owned firms, but I think if you get in kind of the mid market, it, you can still make quick decisions. You can still innovate, you know, it kind of feels startup ish as far as, as getting the work done. But then you, you, you have the advantages of a bigger company. It's, it's a proven business model. Like you're not sitting here going, Oh my God, like, are we going to sell this thing? Are we going to, you know, what are our sales numbers going to be next month? They're, they're, they're pretty predictable. You know, you're not w- worried about how to make payroll. You're not worried about, oh, God, we got to go raise another round of funding and interest rates are going up. Like, what's that going to look like? And so I really enjoyed kind of transitioning into the private equity world because of those, you know, sort of so the advantages. They have. The, I think it has the advantages of, you know, kind of the big public companies and the, and the speed of, of the startups. Yeah, that's great. And who were some influencers along the way? Oh, lots of people. I've learned a ton from from a bunch of people. I go back to one of the first CTOs who really helped me at Ceridian. Uh, his name was DePunker Mandel. I still remember that name 25 years from now. Learned a ton from that guy on how to build tech. And, you know, this was back in the 90s when the web is still in its infancy and like we were talking about layers and micro, we didn't call it microservices you know but just the ideas about how do you scale apps and break down apps and the languages and stuff that we used back then were different but uh the fundamental architectural design is what you see today in a lot of the apps and so learned a lot from uh that gentleman also learned a lot from our corporate cto at uh at adp Darko uh, was his name. He doesn't look like a Darko, but uh, certainly a a very helpful person, you know, about kind of, you know, in a big company, like how do you manage, you know, sort of process and architecture and designing things the right way and and getting them done. Certainly learned a lot from that gentleman along the way. The guy I'm working for now, Mike Scarborough, this is the second time I've worked for him. Mm. And, uh, uh, his name is the professor because like he's full of knowledge and uh, loves to teach and and uh, share everything he's learned over the years. Uh, and so I've certainly have, I've learned a lot from that man. And, you know, without any of those guys, there's other people too, you know, along the way, people have worked for me, you know, I've learned a lot from as well. And I've, I've had the fortunate opportunity to work on a team with people that I've worked with before. And so other folks like that, you know, I've learned a lot from and we've been able to help each other over the years. That's great. Well, Tommy, it's been great having you on. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your experience and your wisdom. Uh, I really can't say thank you enough. So uh, we wish you good luck in the new year. And uh, hopefully we can maybe have you back on the on the podcast maybe uh, later this year as well. Yeah, yeah, we can we can talk about that innovation I was talking about. Maybe I could talk about actually what we launched. Tell us what you did, <laughs> how you dominated. <laughs> yep, what worked well, maybe what we learned. Right. Uh, you Here's know what made the competitors the cry. Right. <laughs> yep. You know? Yep. Yep. That, that's the plan. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again. We also wanted to thank our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. 
And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.